Welcome to the MSU Press Podcast, where we talk about university press publishing with some of the authors, editors, and publishers who make it happen from the campus of Michigan State University. On today's episode, we're joined by Monty Magaki II to discuss his book, Bekejwanan Dabajmowinen, Stories of Where the Waters Divide. Thanks for tuning in. Bekejwanan means where the waters part, but the waters of St. Clair River are not a point of separation. The same waters that sustain life on and around Bekejwanan, formerly known as Walpole Island, Ontario, flow down into Chippewas of the Thames, the community to which author Monty Magaki belongs. While there are no living fluent speakers of Anishinaabe Moan in this community, Magaki has fostered relationships with fluent speakers from nearby Bekejwanan. Bekejwanan Dabajmowinen is a collection of stories from these elders who understand the vital importance of passing on the language to future generations in order to preserve the beloved language and legacy of the community. Like the waters of St. Clair River, the relationships between language speakers and learners have continued to nourish Anishinaabe communities in Bekejwanan and Chippewas of the Thames, particularly in language revitalization. With English translations, this resource is essential for Anishinaabe Moan learners, teachers, linguists, and historians. Monty Magaki II is of Anishinaabe and Oneida descent and was raised in Chippewas of the Thames, where he currently works in language revitalization. He's a second language speaker of Anishinaabe Moan and holds a Master's of Professional Education in Indigenous Educational Leadership from Western University in London, Ontario. Mani, thank you for joining me today. Yeah, miigwech. Thank you. I wonder if we could start with a bit of discussion of your own journey with Anishinaabe Moan. How did you go about learning the language, you know, when you decided to undertake it as a second language endeavor? So first I'll I'll say um Bojo Zaogijigo Gano and go Dashkanzi Bing and Dunjba Mishikendo them Nishnabando. So I just said my spirit name and where I'm from, my clan, and then I'm Anishinaabe. So my language journey, our community doesn't have any speakers. I think since the nineteen eighties was the last time we had any kind of elder that was a fluent speaker in our community. So when I grew up, it wasn't a living thing, I guess. My family didn't speak, you know, it wasn't part of my life. We had it at school. We had it as a school subject. And so that's what I related it to was that, oh yeah, we have math science. Oh, then we have language class and no one really took it seriously. And so that's kind of how I grew up. And then when I was around 10 years old, my dad gave me this book and at the time a cassette, and it was like a learning, one learning book. He's like, oh, here's our language. You should learn how to speak it. And at the time I was, I was a little intrigued, but not really. Like I was like, well, who am I going to talk to? Right. But it kind of planted that seed in me. And I, I would listen to it and read through the book, you know, here and there. And it kind of stuck with me as, the, as I was growing up and throughout high school, we didn't have Ojibwe class just because there wasn't a teacher. And I remember being in high school and so we go to elementary school on reserve. And then when we go to high school, we go to the town. So London, Ontario, when I went there, there were kids there my age. So when I was 14 in grade nine, there were kids that were speaking Portuguese and Chinese and Arabic. And I was kind of jealous. And I was like, why, 
why are they speaking like how, how come they can speak like i didn't really understand our history at that time i was like why are they speaking language to each other why can't we do that and why isn't anyone interested in doing that and so it kind of stuck with me i went on to college and university you know i didn't really know what to do like professionally or career wise after i was done in university i knew i wanted to learn the language so I just looked up a course online and there was one in Sault Ste. Marie at Sioux College in Ontario. And it was a one-year program. So I just said, yeah, I'm going to do it. I'm going to go up there and take it. And around that time too, we had community classes that were open and I was doing those, but not really taking it seriously yet. But I had that interest. And then, so when I went up to Sault Ste. Marie, right away when I was in class, I knew that like I wanted to be a speaker and the teacher that was there, Doris Buzno, kind of taught the basic structure of the language to make our own sentences, whereas not a lot of teachers can do that really. Like you get taught phrases, like that's just where we're at with Anishinaabe one teaching. At that time I was thinking, well, I wanna share this with, with people. I wanna let people know this is how you put, you know, a simple sentence together and then build from there. And so I just kind of, I came back home after that year and then I started teaching the community classes or helping out and then that that right from there just kind of like was my teaching start I guess it's really interesting to hear about your father giving you this book and sort of saying here's our language you know maybe you should take a look at it what what was it like in that community where folks aren't fluently speaking the language but nevertheless sort of have you know, a history of, of that language and how did it turn up, you know, in your childhood and was it used by elders around you and those sorts of things? Our family um, doesn't have any speakers in it. So my grandfather doesn't speak. Um, so my mother is Oneida and my grandparents spoke Oneida on, on my mother's side. And I would hear them speak, you know, when they would babysit me and I would be like, what are they speaking? And my mom's like, oh, they're speaking Oneida. But there was that, that's as far as that went. And my mother doesn't speak Oneida, um, which is kind of like that generation didn't pass down the language to that next generation. So I heard more Oneida family wise, like within just like family gatherings and stuff, hearing little phrases and stuff, expressions here and there. But within the one, I never heard it anywhere other than school. Um, I might have heard maybe miigwech, which is thank you, or bojo, which is hello. I might have heard that in the community once in a while. But other than that, I never heard Anishinaabe one really at all. My dad gave me that book to to learn from. You know, I thought it was kind of cool to learn, you know, to be able to speak eventually. But then again, it was like, who do I talk to? There is no one else around really. And I didn't know the language environment or the language um, in our community, like the language status. I thought maybe there were still elders. So when I went to Sault Ste. Marie, so that was around 2007, I had thought maybe there's still elders in our community that are speakers and I just didn't know. And so when I came back, I was trying to think of, or I was kind of asking people here and there, you know, you know, any speakers and everyone's like, no, we don't know anyone. And so then it kind of came to the realization, oh, we don't have any speakers. That's when I kind of had to seek out another speaker from other communities. Um, so Bekejanong was the closest community to have speakers. And when I mentioned those community classes that we had, um, it was a speaker from Bekejanong that would come and teach. And 
So after I came back from Sault Ste. Marie, I was thinking, okay, I need to live with the speaker. That was my thought of the next step. Full immersion. Yeah. And so the only speaker I knew was that speaker from Bikhejanong, who is Jenny Blackbird, who has one of the stories in the book. So she was teaching in our community. I got her phone number and I called her up just kind of out of the balloon. Um, so she knew who I was like from the classes, but she didn't really know who like who I was. Um, and so I asked her, I said, can I live with you for a month? And she was like, oh, let me call you back. And so <laughs> she took it. She had to give it some thought. Yeah. So she took a day to call or to think about it. And then she called me back the next day. And then she's like, yeah, yeah, you can. So you moved out there. Yeah, I moved in with Jenny Blackbird uh, for a month. And um, it wasn't full immersion, but it was more, it was just like more language. And I was able to be right there with her and ask questions as I, as we went along and got to meet other speakers in the in Bikhejanong at that time. So did that relationship, is that how you say you met some other speakers while you were there? Is that how you encountered the other folks that story with stories in the book? Or did they come from other places too? So in Bikhejanong, they started an adult program, which was in the year 2010 to 2014. And they created that program to create teachers, language teachers. I attended that program and I should say I got to know some other speakers from Bikhejanong a little bit more because I met them through Jenny uh, when I was there living there and going to their community classes there. During that time, I got to know um, the speakers better and got to meet other speakers or people knew of other speakers and that was kind of where the where I, where I kind of knew they should be documented in my mind in some way to you know getting a variety of speakers from from Bikhejanong to to speak and hear hear their sound and sometimes it's not sometimes even like a family in the same community speaks differently than another family in the same community so kind of wanted to hear get that variety of speakers so you ended up with about i think it's seven different yeah. speakers in the book that you've collected stories from could you talk a little bit about that like the process of that work like, how did you go about recording them and and what kind of challenges did you face in taking oral transcripts or or oral recordings and first transcribing them into into printed text and then translating them in Bikhejanong, they have a, a language group called the Anishinaabe Mu'an Language Advisory Group. On there is fluent speakers and non-fluent speakers who just want to help out with language revitalization. And so I went to them and I told them about the project and I, I was kind of like getting their blessing, I guess, of coming into their community and doing this. And so they agreed and I was able to get a grant to cover the costs of giving them honorariums and stuff like that. And so I had a friend in, in Bikajanong who helped me with a few of the speakers, getting them together, finding a place. So that was kind of, that was part of it. And then asking other speakers to help me, you know, find who else is in Bikajanong that are speakers. And so they helped me kind of showed me where they live and, um, a lot of speakers that they had told me about, you know, I'd I just would go to their house and just ask, like, this is the project I'm doing. Do you want to be a part of it? And there was a few that were like, yeah, yeah, let's do it. <laughs> and there were a few that, you know, just declined. And I think what I learned from that was like that relationship building, you know, someone just coming into your house and being like, hey, can I record you? I can kind of understand that. At first I was like, well, don't you want to document the language and keep it alive? You know, that was my thought. But 
there's that importance of relationship building as well. It was just kind of like getting connections through everyone, like through the speakers that I knew, asking them, okay, do you know speakers? Where do they live? And asking them. And there were some speakers that were that would say, oh, I, I used to speak, but I forgot it. Or they would just say, oh, I don't speak. I think that was just part of, you know, them not being comfortable or also just really not speaking the language for for years, probably like just being around family that doesn't speak. And I'm sure if they were around other speakers for a certain amount of time, they could probably bring that language back out. But at that time, yeah, they would be like saying, oh, yeah, no, I forgot it. I used to speak it, but I forget it now. So there's all all these different um, challenges to to trying to get um, as many speakers as I could. And it is it, it does speak to the challenges of of the whole project, you know, to to have that, like, depending on folks who maybe learned when they were really young and then didn't have other people to speak to after a time, like the all of the challenges presented just by the where the language is. Um, seem really difficult to overcome. And then, as you say, those interpersonal like community building challenges on top of that, it's a fascinating and challenging endeavor, it sounds like. Mechanically, then, did you just record them and try to transcribe what they had said sort of verbatim? Other resources that I've seen, I really like them because they were recorded stories transcribed. And I find that when it's an English story, there's something like if it's English and then translate it into the language um, already written, there's something that just misses when there's uh, when it's natural speech. And so I wanted to get that natural speech out as, as much as I could. And when I was transcribing, I was trying to transcribe as closely as possible and not even make too many corrections. So there's a lot of um, like even what I'm saying now when we say um in English. Um, in the language, there's a word like they say ni'i, which is kind of like um, or it's kind of like saying whatchamacallit. So they say ni'i or na'a. So things like that I wanted to get in in the stories. And there's these other things called discourse markers, which are these little sounds that aren't defined. There's not one definition because it changes depending on context. And these little sounds like sa or guna or sagana. They're not really words I can say, oh, this, it means this. They're just kind of like sprinkled within the stories, within natural speech. And I find, I found that when it's translated from an English story, those, those aren't included. I don't know what to call it an innate natural thing that a speaker produces and they don't even know. That's why they're really hard to learn for us learners, because I would say, what, what did you mean by saying sagona? They'd be like, oh, that just, you know, I just put that there. You know, they, can, they can't really explain it either, but there is a, an explanation for it. It's just really hard to, to learn or understand that. Um, but I wanted to get those in the story for people studying or learning the language. You know, they can kind of see those where, where they're in, what part of the sentence they're in and stuff like that. I think that's such an important point to emphasize, because as you as you sort of point out that there's a huge difference between our written languages and our spoken languages. One of the things that I've noticed in doing this podcast is there's even a, there's, there's generational differences between the kind of filler sounds people make and the noises that people make, you know, when they're thinking about something or when they're referring to something that we both have the same context on so that, you know, they can sort of say, uh, you know, that thing, whatever that thing is. 
um, you know, that over there kind of thing. And that's the sort of stuff that when I'm editing the podcast, my tendency is to like, well, cut all of that. It's all just filler. You know, what I'm trying to get is the meat of the ideas. And I'm not thinking about trying to preserve the actual natural sounds that we make when we talk to each other. What it does to a language to record that and then all of the speaking population is diminishing rapidly and they're making an effort to learn it. That kind of stuff is so important, it seems, to record because you wouldn't know it if you didn't hear people speaking and all you had was, well, they used these five words and those sounds were kind of irrelevant, you know, noises that connected sentences together. Yeah, for sure. You're listening to the MSU Press Podcast. I'm here with Monty McGacky II, editor and translator of Bekejwanan Dabajmawinen, Stories of Where the Waters Divide. Monty, we talked about having you read a little bit from the book. I think it would be great to for listeners to hear the sound of the language and to capture some of that, you know, unique um, character that comes from actually speaking it. So I was wondering if you would take a little bit of time here um, to read one of the stories in the book. In English, it's called "You All Are Carrying This Language." It's told by Jenny Blackbird, who you said you lived with. So I'll just read the title: "Good you all are carrying this language. Mida shiwa nangwa geni eja mami kwenema nangwa manda ginwa enan kieg brandy monti minona a betsy. Ginwa miodu yag manda manda ni e bokkawen jin kadamung jib miodu yag manda. Ginwa warriors mi gaza nina awe mi gaza nini maba. Minuana a Betsy. Gay go o, mi gazon iniquae, gay we awe o. Manda ni in Bokhawen, hedged among Jemil du yegmanda, gin wa. Wenj dishko gichipitenanim, yu gin wa, nankieg. Nangum, manda pee. Minua apajigos nagat manda ni inishna bemwen gonda bemazjik. Midashkin wa gidamyo duna wa mandasan ni nishna bemwen. Gin wa pimajayang. Gin wa gidamiyaushkagon manda wi miyoduyag manda nishna bemwen. Ninshkona gini debenak gomina matsia. Mina wewenena nagduwen ma eje eje gukshke elzia. Manda ni e nishna bamun as you get your beaten dog book manda gem nado gamin goes ding. Wench to go a manatagot manda gagan ni e jigizwe when ya snow ma manda ni e manda ni e and no way when me dash you up a jigain manda. Gemne doga juen megging, minua nad magging, gage wika, menequa when gias no mampin schnabig. Mikogonda shaganasha gab benach jig. Midash you gaining way as you coxke elziang, maba and mudbit, Shirlijan kaza. Or again, and the dope in a bequay, gee not a magum, manda ni inishna bemwen. 
Wench to go get your pitendam ginwa manda nangwa nangkiek. So that was that story, and I'll leave it for the listeners to get the book to get the translation of that. Thank you for that. It's so wonderful to to hear it actually out. You know, having having spent some time trying to read it and and learn what I could in preparing for this, it's great to you know hear a real speaker um, read it out for me. Um, as you said, listeners are encouraged to check out the book for the translation. One of the things that they would find there is that this is a story about language preservation and about sort of the history of what happened to the language. And one of the things that occurred to me in sort of reading all of the stories in the book is that it's really impossible to separate the language from the history of the people who spoke the language and, and what happened to them and, and what's you know, been the efforts to revitalize the language. Um, folks in the book talk about losing their lifeways and the arrival of white colonials, residential schools, all of that sort of thing. How did collecting these stories and translating them change or affect your kind of understanding of history and your identity and all of those kinds of things? Um, I think just when you hear speakers' stories, it always puts in perspective of how important the language is and what, what they went through as kids, like you think of like five, six years old, being away from home and being forced to not speak your language. And whenever I hear those stories, it kind of reinvigorates me and keeps me focused on, you know, wanting to bring back the language, wanting to bring back the culture. And it just kind of reinforces all of that. And, you know, hearing the stories or seeing the stories on paper, um, kind of impacts us as as Anishinaabe or as indigenous people and kind of helping us to stay determined in in what we're trying to do and that was kind of another you know apart from getting the language you know getting those stories out to people as well that was kind of the goal of it and it is, and we should say that the, it's a bilingual book. It's in English and Anishinaabe, in Anishinaabe Moan, so folks can compare and, and learn more about the language and, and see it in English, those kinds of things. I wonder, Monty, could you say a little bit about your efforts and your work around revitalization now uh, that this book is a part of? Um, so I work in my community, Chippewas of the Thames. I work with language revitalization, and I've I had different um, roles, um, you know, helping the teachers with teaching the language and then also teaching community classes. Right now, we're doing an adult program um, from September to April. Um, so we're finished soon and uh, we have eight students. And so that's kind of my focus for this year. Um, you know, th there's all these different parts of language revitalization and we need all these different tools for it. And so the, the book is kind of like one tool to help learners with their language journey. Um, you know, of course, you need to be around fluent speakers and, you know, there's a lot of resources online now. There's Zoom classes out there now. So that's what I kind of tell people is that don't just think of one thing or don't kind of limit yourself to one way of learning or one resource, you know, kind of search around out there and find as much as you can. And that's what I've been, you know, kind of imparting to, to my students that, uh, that I've been working with is be open to all ways of learning. I think it's easy to forget how we learn language by just being totally 
assaulted with it from all angles. You know, when you're when you're a kid, you you hear hear it coming from everywhere and see it kind of all over and learn it without effort. And then to like approach something where that isn't possible and have to find, you know, places where you can encounter it and seek them out and, and put yourself in those positions is a real, takes a real effort. Do you find that the sort of slightly increasing access to resources and, and interest in revitalization, is it helping to, to make it easier? So when I started seriously learning, I guess in 2007, since then there's a lot more resources out there. A lot of people are uploading stuff to YouTube and things like that. There's a lot more books out there, children's books, you know, of course we still, you know, we're not, we're not where we want to be. Uh, we don't have like a library of thousands of books or leveled readers. Um, we're not quite there yet, but there's definitely more resources out there for people. There's a few people out there that I know that, you know, they make it pretty far just learning on their own, you know, just because of our, especially in Southern Ontario, our access to speakers, you know, isn't high. So we kind of have to look at other, other ways to learn. I was wondering if you, we talked a little bit before we started recording about your podcast that you do with your wife, where you're um, chronicling your journey, raising your kids in the language. Would you be willing to say a little bit about that? Yeah. So we have a podcast called Enwaying Our Sound, and we started it to kind of give other people insight on how we're raising our children in the language. I haven't spoken English to my children. I have a four-year-old and a two-year-old, so I haven't spoken English to them since they were born. My wife's at a kind of different level of, of learning, so she's used a little bit of English with them. But for the most part at home, well, I guess anywhere we go, we try and just use the language with them. And our podcasts, we talk about that and, you know, the challenges of being surrounded by English and having, you know, even our family members, um, they don't speak the language. And, you know, we want our children to have, you know, relationships with them. So, you know, they have to learn English and we understand that, you know, for us, they're going to speak English no matter what, you know, we're surrounded by it. So um, we try and use the language with them as much as possible. Yeah, our podcast kind of talks about all those different things like that. How do the kids take to hearing it? Are they are they pretty responsive to participating in the language? Yeah, so my daughter, um, right now she responds in English, but she understands like everything I say. And she, if, if prompted, she'll, she'll respond in, in the language. But for them, it's just normal because it's, you know, they've heard it since birth. So it's not like a foreign thing to them. So I think as as they get older, they'll start understanding, you know, that there's a different, um, not everyone knows what they know. And I think um, for us as parents, we kind of, you know, we're, we're really uh, hard on ourselves as learners of the language. And sometimes that's what hinders our own learning ourselves. And, you know, we're really we just want it so bad and we're kind of, you know, the history of how it was taken, you know, we have all these things in us that sometimes even just stop us from speaking and we want our children, you know, we want them to speak so bad. And sometimes we're really hard on ourselves. Like, you know, they should know more or we should, you know, we don't know enough yet to be speaking to them. You know, we have all these thoughts that come up and sometimes we just need to take a step back and understand that, 
you know, they they know a lot of language and not every family, like 99% of the families in this, like Southern Ontario, at least, like they're not getting this, this language and they don't know it. So we kind of sometimes take a step back and be like, you know, they, they do know a lot. And, you know, hopefully that kind of influences other people around us to, to do the same. It does really, it makes me wonder about the way that this period of suppression and, you know, loss and absence is going to change the language because the language that your kids learn, you know, it is the language, but it's a kind of version, right? Like it's kind of the result of your effort and the communities that you're part of and, and what they're learning from you. So they'll be carrying on, you know, the language, but changed by this, by this history. Like, I wonder if you have thoughts about that, like how the, how the language has changed and how has it been put to new purposes? Like one of the things I'm thinking of is um, occasionally the speakers will mention like, oh, there goes an airplane. I'm not sure what we would call that in the language. Yeah, I think there's um, as uh, dedicated learners, you know, other people that I know that are learning, we, our goal is to sound like a fluent speaker, right? Like a, like a natural speaker. And we want to think like a fluent speaker. We don't want to say things that a fluent speaker wouldn't say, but there are influences of English that have creeped in because people want to express themselves and fluent speakers want to give that to people, right? They want them to express themselves in the language. And so things like even saying good morning, that's a greeting in English, but we don't really say that in the language. We can say it. it is a good morning, like, oh, yeah, it's a good morning outside. But we don't have that as a greeting. But now, because so many people ask things like that, um, speakers have just kind of um, allowed that to be good morning as a greeting. And things like uh, being polite, that's kind of new. We don't have a word for please necessarily. Or have a nice day. There's We didn't really have a way to say that. But speakers have kind of changed the language a bit so that it fits to please us learners. And so things like that, like the influence of English, like you hear of new terminology all the time, not just like technology, but even expressions like a new one. What's what's like a new one the kids are saying these days, like what's the T or something like that. So a learner is going to come up to a speaker and say, how do you say what's the T? You can say that in the language, but it's not the expression that English is talking about, right? And so it's being influenced by that English expression. So we can tell someone in the language what's the T, or we can ask someone, but it's that English. It's more of an English expression being put in the language, right? And I don't know how, if that, you know, we can stop things like that. I think that's just going to be something that we're going to have to accept that's going to be part of part of the new learners wave of expressing. You know, there's a lot of people that are not a lot, but some people that, you know, they want to preserve the the way of speaking and, and our way of thinking. And I definitely know that there is a change influenced by English. I think that's just the, the way it, it, it has to be or the way it's going to go, at least. Well, hopefully that books like this one and other revitalization efforts can make some headroads into pushing back the other way. And maybe some, you know, English speakers can learn a thing or two from Anishinaabe people who, you know, are, are bringing a different way of thinking and a different way of speaking. And, you know, there's no reason that it should only be one way other than a history of oppression and all of the other historical contingencies that have put the language in the position that it's in. 
Yeah, that's not even including the words that we're kind of losing, I guess, because of our lifestyle. Like a lot of fishing terms, a lot of hunting terms, trapping. You know, we don't really have to live that lifestyle now. So all of those words that were embedded in that lifestyle um, are kind of being forgotten just because we don't we don't live that way anymore. But yeah, there's definitely people out there who are wanting to preserve that, speakers that are wanting to preserve that and getting back to our our way of living in that way. Like for example, in our community, a lot more people are doing like maple syrup harvesting. So within the past, I would say like five years even, there's a lot more people tapping trees and as learning a language as well, you know, we're getting that, how do we say this and that around tapping trees. Our generation is kind of like bringing back, you know, kind of like trying to revitalize our language and our culture, whereas it was kind of my parents' generation was kind of, it wasn't a big deal, you know, to, to do that stuff, um, to revitalize that stuff. That was just the environment of how they grew up. And then my generation and the generation before kind of getting away from that residential school um, uh, experience and that intergenerational trauma. As we get further away from it, you know, we're kind of getting more stronger in our, our culture and are wanting to revitalize our culture and language. You know, on that note, as you're, as you're talking about cultural revitalization and language revitalization and, and the resource that this book provides, what would you, where would you point people who want to learn more about Anishinaabe Moan and like start to think about, you know, learning the language? What kind of resources, uh, in addition to your book, would you turn them toward? Uh, first, I would say, if you know of a speaker or speakers that you can talk to, sometimes you just have to put yourself out there and just go up to them and start talking, like develop that relationship, introduce yourself and put yourself out there and just, you know, say, I want to learn language. Um, that would be the first thing. The other thing is just, you know, you got to search, you know, if you have language classes in your area or language classes online, you know, just going through social media, searching for that, or if you know people who are into language, you know, learning and, you know, you just kind of have to put your stuff out there and just kind of go for it. There's a lot more resources online as well. You know, you just type in Anishinaabemo and a lot of things all come up. But yeah, I would just say put yourself out there and just, you, you have to seek it out yourself. It's not going to come to you magically. And I think the people that I've seen become speakers you know, that's what they've done. They've kind of put themselves out there. And the common thing that they have is that they've found a speaker that they're able to now just call anytime and ask for a translation or talk to them in the language. That's that's one common thing that I know that I've seen. Learners who become proficient speakers have done that. So yeah, that would be my uh, my advice. And to pick up the the great new book, yeah, definitely. Like resources, getting, you know, finding as many resources as you'd like uh, to over overwhelm yourself. But, you know, things like the book, you know, that's a tool. And I tell people it's like building a house. Like we don't just have one tool to build a whole house. We need all these different tools to help us. I think, Monty, that's probably a great place to leave it. So as we do, I wanted to say, Migwitch, thank you so much for uh, joining us today, sharing your stories, sharing your work on this book. It's been really interesting for me to sit with the book and to hear your stories and the work you've been doing to revitalize the language. So thank you again so much for your time. Yeah, Migwitch, thank you for having me.
Monty McGackey's Bekejwanan Dabajma Winnen, Stories of Where the Waters Divide, is available at msupress.org and other fine booksellers. As he said in the show, Monty and his wife have a podcast about the challenges of raising their children in Nishinaabe Moen called Inwaying, Our Sound, which is available wherever you get your podcasts, and I'll put a link to it in the notes for the show. You can connect with the press on Facebook and at MSU Press on Twitter, where you can also find me at Kurt Milb. The MSU Press podcast is a joint production of the MSU Press and the College of Arts and Letters here at Michigan State University. Thanks to the team at MSU Press for helping to produce this podcast. Our theme music is Coffee by Cambo. Remember that the Michigan State University occupies the ancestral, traditional, and contemporary lands of the Anishinaabe Three Fires Confederacy of Ojibwe, Odawa, and Potawatomi people. The university resides on land ceded in the 1819 Treaty of Saginaw. Thank you all so much for listening and never give up on books.